Welcome to Medicare for All Explained. This podcast will enlighten our listeners and dispel the distortions that surround Medicare for All. Medicare for All Explained is produced in collaboration with Physicians for a National Health Program and is hosted and produced by Joe Sparks. I'm your host, Joe Sparks. This is Episode 34, An Ongoing Issue, Drug Prices and Supplies Before and During the Pandemic. My guest, Shannon Rotolo, has her doctorate in pharmacy and is a clinical pharmacy specialist at the University of Chicago Medicine. She manages high-cost specialty drugs that are complex to administer. Dr. Rotolo precepts pharmacy students at the University of Buffalo, University of Illinois at Chicago, and several other schools of pharmacy located in the Chicagoland area for introductory and advanced pharmacy practice experiences. Dr. Shannon Rotolo, welcome to Medicare for All Explained. Thank you. Thanks, Joe, for having me here. I'd like to start by asking, have you noticed an effect on drugs that are needed for the COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah, uh, definitely. So drugs that are certainly needed and then drugs that are maybe needed or have some limited evidence have both been impacted by the pandemic. As well as actually, I would even say drugs that aren't needed specifically for COVID-19 have been impacted by the pandemic as well. And originally, when we did this program, we were going to talk about high drug prices, and we'll get to that. But how has it affected the drugs that you're thinking of? So it definitely has affected drug prices in some cases. The other thing that has been altered by the pandemic is changes in um, utilization of those drugs. So that might be outpatient prescribing practices or number of prescription fills of some of the drugs that are available in the outpatient setting. And then in the inpatient setting, utilization of certain drugs has increased um, because they are either effective specifically effective against COVID potentially, or more so they're used in the ICU setting as sedatives or paralytics for folks that are requiring uh, ventilation in the ICU. So one of the things that I've heard is that drugs that are required for intubating someone may become in short supply. So have you noticed supply shortages for those? And have you noticed the price rising for those? So with paralytics and sedatives that we would use to intubate someone or to keep someone paralyzed and sedated while they're needing mechanical ventilation, um, those drugs are in short supply. So in some cases, they're available at wholesalers, but they're only being released in limited quantities to prevent um, sort of excessive ordering or stockpiling by hospitals who are expecting to be hit with more patient cases that are going to require ICU or specifically ventilation um, care. And then the need for that at hospitals that have already been hit by this pandemic is certainly a lot higher. So orders are still being filled as hospitals order these drugs. Um, shipments are still going out, but they're maybe only going out at 70 or 80 percent of what's requested. Um, and that's sort of based on historical ordering data, whereas the need for it is going to be a lot more as that utilization goes up to be able to 
treat and manage patients that come in with COVID-19. Well, like for using a paralytic, if somebody's intubated or using an anesthetic to help them, are there alternatives or, or is there only a limited set of drugs that can be used? So there is a limited set of drugs that can be used, although it's not necessarily just one. Um, we're seeing shortages in multiple products and not even just multiple drugs, but also the same product in different vial sizes. So I guess as an example, um, cisatricurium comes in a 5 ml or a 10 ml or a 20 ml vial that an IV room can you know, compound to the appropriate size that's needed for the patient um, or into you know, a bag to be run continuously. But regardless of the specific product, whether it's a large size or small size vial, those are all on shortage now. Um, so there is really not just multiple drugs, but any products of those drugs that are not being fully filled in orders from hospitals to wholesalers or to manufacturers. And if hospitals don't have these drugs, can they intubate? So I don't think anyone would want to without these drugs because you certainly could if you're, you know, fight against a ventilator, hurt yourself. And I'm I'm probably not the person to explain the uh, pathophysiology of that. But yeah, it would, it would definitely increase the risk. Um, it may not be appropriate in certain circumstances. So even if, and I know we don't currently, um, and a lot of cities uh, have an appropriate number of vents, even if you have an appropriate number of vents, if you don't have the drugs that are needed to do that safely, um, or the healthcare professionals that are needed to do that safely, whether that's physicians or respiratory therapists or nurses, um, it's really potentially a limitation to being able to provide the appropriate care. And one of the things you also said is that there are some other drugs that are in short supply, ones that are possible treatments. Could you talk about that, please? Sure, yes. Uh, in late March, our president made some comments about some medications that are available as oral or by-mouth medications uh, that might have some activity against COVID-19. Um, at the time, there's really limited and not high quality research to confirm that. But what we saw as a result of those statements was a huge increase in prescription volume. So um, in the first, not even two weeks of March, we saw the number of fills of hydroxychloroquine, which is one of those medications, go up by over 360%. And um, that is since mostly stabilized out, but that initial stockpiling of this medication meant shortages. Um, so folks that need hydroxychloroquine, like people who have lupus or other chronic conditions that might benefit from that medication, um, were finding that in mid to late March, they were unable to fill their prescriptions for their chronic therapies that keep them out of the hospital. So hydroxychloroquine is a great example of that. A uh, related one to that molecule, we also saw a drug with a price increase of almost 100%. Um, back in very late January when they knew that there was going to be a potential to make money on this based on increased use in some other countries. Um, that was chloroquine. There was a huge media pushback to that. So in late March, they dropped their price of that back down to around where it had originally been. Um, but certainly just shows you how drug manufacturers would love to take advantage of the situation rather than assist people. So let me get this straight. I read articles that people were being 
prosecuted for price gouging on toilet paper and some other things, but we completely allow it for drugs, is what it seems like you're saying. Well, what's wild is we do completely allow it for these large drug companies, but um, like one of the pharmacies in New York State that I can think of, an independent pharmacy, was compounding hand sanitizer um, because there's an increased need for that. They're selling it for $4. Um, $4 is certainly more than the ingredients needed to make that hand sanitizer. But if you think about the pharmacist's time that goes into compounding that, um, the fact that that pharmacy was staying open through the pandemic to provide that and then other prescription services to their patients, $4 doesn't seem out of this world for hand sanitizer. But, you know, something like that, they had the state board in that state of pharmacy um, really come down on them and ended up with some fines after that price gouging, in quotes, I guess, incident was reported, whereas these drug companies can double, triple the price of medications without any checks or balances. Which brings me to my next point about high drug prices. So basically, basically companies can do whatever they want with drug prices. Yes. Uh, So whether it's during the pandemic or in ordinary times, there really aren't any sort of checks and balances or the traditional market forces that you would think of in economics uh, to control drug prices. Because once you have, particularly with brand name drugs, we've seen once you have a patent, you can set the price wherever you want. You can increase the price whenever you want. So we saw a number of drugs had a 5% price increase this past January, just because they could with the new year. Um, And that included things like Humira, which is this blockbuster, probably number one selling in terms of uh, revenue not sales, I don't think, but revenue uh, drug in the country up to their price, even though they have already these enormous profit margins. So there really isn't any means of controlling against that. And the money isn't necessarily like the profit that these companies make isn't being channeled back into drug development or something like that. This is going directly to their shareholders or their CEO or... Um, not patients, certainly. Do these high drug prices cause problems for patients? Yeah, all the time. So I think patients tend to be a little bit more shielded from this in the inpatient setting, but where I work in the outpatient setting, we see this all the time. So it can be for folks that are totally uninsured that a lot of medications are simply not going to be affordable without insurance. Um, But even for folks that are insured, if you have, you know, one of the commercial insurance plans, you may not notice that anything has an incredibly high copay until you need to use maybe a high cost or specialty drug. And then all of a sudden you're responsible for much higher copay than what's affordable. Um, Or for folks that have Medicare Part D, similarly, um, they're usually paying a percentage of the total cost of high cost drugs. So with some of the medications that I work with in our pulmonary clinic, a drug that is $9,000 $9,000 a month, if their Medicare Part D plan is only covering 80% of it, that ends up looking like an $1,800 a month copay for that patient. And obviously that creates problems. So given this, have you noticed, well, before the pandemic, have you noticed any supply problems with drugs? Um, so we do 
often deal with drug shortages, both in the inpatient and outpatient setting. I think it's a lot more noticeable in the inpatient setting. So at the hospital where I work, every single week, there's a meeting to figure out how we're going to manage certain drug shortages. And usually there is an alternative product or like I was talking about before with vial sizes, maybe an alternative size to what we would typically buy. They can be managed, but it's not that they don't affect patient care. They certainly do. We just utilize a lot of pharmacists to figure out alternate plans um, to minimize how much they're going to affect patient care. But drug shortages is certainly an ongoing issue in this country. Now, you do something a little different from most pharmacists, right? Yeah. So I currently work in a specialty pharmacy at a large academic medical center. So specialty pharmacies manage high-cost drugs um, or other drugs that are considered specialty items would be things that are complex to administer or just require maybe a little higher touch in terms of having a pharmacist really help someone understand how they're going to use that medication because of the challenges to give it potential side effects or um, often it is cost. So when you look at both the problems with the pandemic and the normal problems in pricing and supply, what do you think is the solution? Oh, definitely. I think Medicare for All would be a huge help in a lot of ways. So um, I think having one unified body being able to negotiate with manufacturers in terms of drug prices, um, having those prices be transparent and consistent so that certain pharmacies aren't being reimbursed more or less or patients aren't locked out of being able to use certain pharmacies um, would be a huge help for controlling costs and for improving patient care. I think in terms of drug shortages, certainly having, you know, a unified response to drug shortages would be a huge help. So what we saw in March of this year, specifically with hydroxychloroquine that I mentioned earlier, was that where there was a huge increase in prescription volume and patients who have lupus weren't able to get access to the drug after those maybe inappropriate um, fills of it in other areas, as that state boards of pharmacy very quickly stepped in. So you had Ohio step in very early on, Kentucky, um, with some prescription management regulations that helped with that situation. But this was done by each individual state, even though we saw that those government entities essentially were able to respond quickly and very appropriately. And I was very impressed with uh, the approach that a lot of these states took. We didn't have that in a kind of widespread format. And then a few weeks later, the pharmacy benefit managers, which are integrated with private insurance, started stepping in and coming up with their own set of rules um, for how they were going to handle new prescription fills or this new prescription volume. And that was really focused on making sure they were maintaining profits, right? Not patient care. So I think that's another way where Medicare for all could, you know, rather than having uh, drive by their shareholders to handle things a certain way or to make sure that um, it's about, you know, their bottom line, really do things that are for the best interest in terms of public health. So what you're saying is you think that if we had a national system like Medicare for all, hopefully there would be um, some people who 
look at stock and pricing and actually say, okay, here's what we need to do to make sure that the drugs are available and can get to the people who need them. Yeah, it would be great to have a more uniform system for that. So one of the things, and I know this isn't necessarily your thing, but there's a shortage of personal protection equipment. Mm -hmm. And one of the problems is that there was nothing in stock, and this is also true for ventilators. And I assume that it's also can be true for some drugs. Do you think that a Medicare for All system would enable hospitals to be able to stock up on necessary equipment and drugs, something that they really don't do now because they want to make a profit, so they only want to use stuff that is used? Sure. So I think um, while I'm not an expert on global budgeting or things like that, uh, I think that having clear and consistent plans for reimbursement would certainly allow hospitals to have an appropriate amount of equipment or necessary drugs or things like that on hand. Um, I think there's probably more than goes into it than would be solved by a single payer alone, but obviously taking some of the um, financial concerns out of that equation would do a lot to resolve or um, improve those issues. Given where we're at, what would you like to see done now? I think that the thing that keeps me up at night, I guess, is I, again, working mostly on the outpatient side, um, I'm seeing more of patients that I know see chronically um, fill prescriptions for regularly where they are losing their insurance because they've lost their jobs during the pandemic or they still have a job um, or they still rather have insurance, but they're not getting the number of hours of their job or where they work isn't currently open. Maybe they're a hairstylist, maybe they work at a restaurant um, and they can't afford their co-pays even if their insurance is still in place. Um, so I really think we need to continue to push for Medicare for all because folks are losing access to the medications that they take chronically and we can't really afford to have people coming in for emergent situations because they weren't able to get the routine care that they need to keep them out of the hospital when we're also trying to manage this pandemic. It's just there's not enough um, healthcare personnel. It's unsafe for patients to have to be coming in for these emergency um, situations or urgent issues while the ER or the urgent care might be full of folks with COVID-19. Um, it's an unnecessary exposure to that virus and you know obviously whether or not some they were exposed during that healthcare visit it's a visit that could have been avoided by making sure people have access to their medications have you noticed other problems with their current healthcare system particularly when it comes to health insurance yeah so something that definitely has been sort of exacerbated in this epidemic or pandemic is um the restrictions that in private insurance companies place on patients in terms of where they can receive care. Um, so that can be that certain places are out of network. It can also be, um, for example, I work with a lot of patients who have severe asthma and use injectable medications to control their asthma. Um, so typically they would come into the clinic once a month, get an injection there. Um, but now there are also options to do those injections at home. 
I, you know, as this pandemic began, and we really wanted to minimize the number of exposures to the healthcare system for those very high risk patients, um, was working on trying to get a lot of patients approved to do those injections at home rather than have to come to the clinic um, and sort of break their self-isolation or social distancing. Um, and it was amazing to me that these private insurers who already are paying for the same medication didn't want to improve, approve that patient converting to home use of the medication. Um, there wasn't some huge difference in cost between the two options. It was just this was their policy. There was no thought about it beyond that, no concern for sort of that individual patient's health or risk during the pandemic or just the public health approach um, to it. So I think that's just another example of where having for-profit companies involved that aren't able to prioritize public health does not make sense. Well, it would seem to me that if they could give the injection at home, it'd be cheaper because you don't have the doctor's time too, or the nurses. Yeah, yeah. I think that the really there's not a huge price difference between the products. It's really the cost of the appointment plus the drug or the cost of the drug alone at home. Um, but depending on the insurance company and how they prefer to pay for that medication, um, I think in some cases, the pharmacy benefit manager that they work with doesn't want to take on that cost because they want to turn around to their clients and say, oh, we denied this many um, requests for this medication. Look at our denial rate. We're you know, saving you money, even though they're still paying for it on the medical benefit side. So based on what you've said, has it been your experience then that pharmacy benefit managers are partially rated by how many claims they deny? So I think that having really tight criteria where they list very few um, things that they would not consider appropriate use of a medication through um, is helpful. I think some of them entirely exclude the category of drugs I work with, so specialty drugs. Um, for example, a lot of union plans will do that to keep costs down because of the high cost of specialty drugs. If you work for a union, um, unions do all this like great work trying to advocate for their, you know, um, team members and trying to make sure that they have insurance. And there's just so much that they're probably leaving at the bargaining table to get health insurance for their members. But then they have to carve out these huge sections of things. So that might be specialty drugs where if, you know, you have someone in the union that has a child with cystic fibrosis, let's say, which is a complex lung disease that requires a lot of high-cost medications to manage that chronically. They may not have access to those drugs with their plan. Um, so there's huge gaps in terms of what's covered by private insurance, even if it is a well-tested therapy that's standard of care, just to try and keep sort of the overhead cost down or the premium cost down to their members. They'll cut out huge sections of um, approved medications. Well, I wish I could say that surprised me, but it doesn't. Um, before we end, is there anything that you would like to add? I would really hope that as time goes on, I see more pharmacists talking about Medicare for All. So it's definitely something that um, impacts patients definitely something that impacts physicians, nurses, but it also really does impact pharmacists. So I would like to see our profession be able to focus really on providing good quality education to patients in terms of what medications do, what the side effects are, 
um, being able to help patients manage their medications and focus on adherence. And I think a lot of that time has really been taken away by dealing with insurance, dealing with billing, um, trying to process prescription claims with overrides and calls to these companies. Um, and it's really, I think, deteriorating the relationship between pharmacists and their patients. And it's particularly bad in independent pharmacies who don't always get reimbursed at the same amount, who sometimes are cut out of network by some of these large PBMs. So again, that place in the community that's often a spot for patients to go with questions um, or patients that are underinsured and maybe aren't regularly seeing a physician have access to a pharmacist. And we're really, by continuing to let private insurance and specifically PBMs operate the way that they do, um, losing a lot of those pharmacies and that point of contact or that access to the healthcare system. Shannon Rotolo, thank you so much for being on Medicare for All Explained. Thanks, Joe. It was great talking with you. You have been listening to Medicare for All Explained. Information about this podcast can be found at our website, medicareforallexplained.org. The music for this show is Super Bubbly by Jesse Spillane. The logo was created by Lily Sparks. Thank you for listening.